I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS, where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. On this week's episode of The Trade Guys, Scott and Bill talk about Nicaragua and CAFTA DR, the EV tax credit and the Inflation Reduction Act, and Chinese economic coercion and trade with Taiwan. All that and more on this week's episode. Hello, Trade Guys. Hope you're having a nice week and staying cool. It's certainly very warm here in Washington. Let's get started with a topic that we briefly touched on last week, which is the U.S. decision to remove Nicaragua from its TRQ sugar program. This week, some people are calling to remove Nicaragua from CAFTA-DR. What's going on? Well, this matter came up in a uh, hearing. I think the Senate Foreign Relations Committee was conducting a confirmation hearing for Hugo Rodriguez, who is the nominee to become U.S. ambassador to Nicaragua. And at that point, Senator Rubio of Florida, who has his roots in Cuba and uh, is fairly strong anti-communist credentials overall, raised the issue of removing uh, Nicaragua from the Central America Free Trade Agreement. As we mentioned last week briefly, that Nicaragua is one of the 20 economies in the world that have free trade agreement with the United States. And it's made very little difference since it went into force 15 or so years ago. So they're still poor. There's still not... Uh, much going on in either uh, preferential exports or imports. But it, be that as it may, uh, the Senator Uber raised it. It appears that there were some head nodding, at least, to that effect. But I think it's probably misplaced. Free trade agreements, you can't fire me, I quit. It would be the only way for Nicaragua to leave. It's possible to withdraw from a free trade agreement. It's not possible to expel a member without something on the order of heroic efforts. So most of our free trade agreements, including as we researched back in uh, the Trump administration, the North American Free Trade Agreement, have a withdrawal clause. Uh, you give notice and six months later you're out. But forcing somebody else to terminate is not part of the deal because it's a treaty among equals or an agreement among equal sovereigns. Well, having part of this is, I think, Scott's right in his description of what goes on. There's, there's no process, in, in, at least in this treaty, for expelling anybody. I guess the United States could lean on them to withdraw, or they could get angry and withdraw. I mean, Russia's threatening to do that to the WTO, although they haven't done it yet, but countries can always threaten that. I think a good part of this is the ambassador nominee, Rodriguez, followed the time-honored strategy of nominees testifying before Congress, which, which I followed when it was my turn to do that, which is uh, grovel shamelessly. You know, the biggest mistake you can make in a confirmation hearing is telling the senator asking you a question that he's wrong. So... What Rodriguez did was to not rock the boat because he wants to get the committee to approve him. It turns out there's a cost for that because once he said that, the Nicaraguan government declared they were going to reject him as ambassador, which made him unacceptable, which creates a different kind of a problem. I mean, it's it's standard diplomatic procedure that the host country has to accept the ambassador or gets to accept the ambassador. And if the host country refuses to accept the ambassador, then there's kind of an impasse. And what usually happens is that the government nominating the ambassador has to come up with somebody else. So there was a cost to this, probably no benefit, because we can't kick them out. And if they don't withdraw, you know, there we are. And I would argue just from a standpoint of principle, it's another illustration of this tendency to turn economics into politics and take a, a trade agreement which is supposed to promote growth and jobs 
particularly in poor countries in Latin America, of which, or in, in this case, Central America, of which Nicaragua is one, and is turning them into political footballs. If I were talking to Rubio, he, of course, would say, well, they're bad people and they're doing bad things. Okay, they are, no question. But, you know, if you're going to conflate politics with economics, first of all, it, you can't do it successfully often. And this is going to be an example of that. And second, you know, you expose your, yourself to other countries doing the same thing to you, which is inevitably going to happen. And it's a distraction from what these agreements are for which is to promote jobs and growth. So. And, and stability and assist with scale because it's, it's a multi-party agreement. There is a CAFTA rule of origin. And so it's really to promote trade among the centrals as well as with the United States. In fairness to Senator Rubio, he may have confused the language about preferential trade agreements with the one-way preferences that have been frequently used in Western Hemisphere, the, at least two programs, the old Caribbean Basin Initiative and the Andean Pact were unilateral preference programs that were based on certain conditions. The U.S. offered, offered lower tariffs. Nothing was needed to be offered in return from the partner countries except meeting a, a set of conditions that weren't strictly economic. So if he's thinking about CAFTA as if it's the CBI, well, that's a mistake in thinking, but it's, I can see how, it, how you can make that mistake if you're a busy senator. So. So I, I wouldn't give him that much credit. But, you know, if he doesn't understand the difference and at a minimum, bad staff work, see on them. And, and call the trade guys uh, at 1-800-TRADE-GUYS if you'd like yes. clarification. Listen to us and we will explain everything. It does make the point, if this were a bilateral agreement, uh, mm. we could address the problem because by simply we could withdraw. Yes. And that would leave them hanging. But the fact that this is multilateral, that won't work. You know, I mean, I guess we could withdraw, but then we would draw from, from all of the countries, not just from Nicaragua, to, which would be to the detriment of us and all of them. So the whole episode is disappointing. Let's talk about withdrawal very quickly. And Scott, this goes back to something you talked about earlier. But how does the United States withdraw from an FTA? Is that a capability of the executive branch or does it need to go to Congress? That is unclear because... The last time we did it, I believe, was in the presidency of President Andrew Johnson. Just after the Civil War, 1868, something like that, if memory serves. We were <laughs> I don't think you were alive then, Scott. I, I definitely wasn't, but I do remember hearing about this, hearing the story of this, at least that we were talked at the Canadians for some reason. And there were certain accommodations that had been made to Canada that Congress wanted to get rid of. So Congress essentially insisted that President Andrew Johnson withdraw from that agreement. But I think that is the last time we revisited this, that it's, it's a situation where I think it would probably take the Congress, because Congress has Article 1, Section 8, gives it the power to regulate foreign commerce. Whether the executive could do it on, on its own, I don't believe it's ever been tested, but probably not. There was a case, Carter v. Goldwater is the classic Supreme Court case that didn't happen which was about Taiwan, of all things. It was when President Carter adopted the One China policy. Part of that was withdrawing from the mutual defense treaty we had with Taiwan, or the Chiang Kai-shek's China. Barry Goldwater, then a Senate minority leader or a prominent Republican senator, I think I don't know if he was a minority leader at the time, sued the administration. Carter v. Goldwater got to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court said, go figure this out on your own. It's a political question. We're not going to get involved. So even in that case, while the Constitution is quite clear about treaties, how you make a treaty, it's not clear at all. In fact, it's silent when it comes to withdrawing from treaties. 
And what exactly would have to happen on a trade agreement is equally muddy. I think it would take the Congress, but uh, nobody really knows. We looked into this during the Trump administration when it was a, a possibility, a real possibility. He was threatening to withdraw from NAFTA at one point, periodically would say ominous things about the WTO. And it was an inconclusive look. I think it would be litigated. Uh, there was clearly there were people in Congress who took the position that he, the president could not withdraw without congressional permission. That's yes. exactly what you expect people in Congress to say. When we looked at the agreements, it seemed to us that he probably could have withdrawn from NAFTA, as I recall. USMCA is, is different or maybe different. It seemed to us that he probably could not have withdrawn from the WTO without congressional approval because of the terms of the different implementing bills enshrined U.S. participation in each of them. So it really depends on, on the nature of the, not, not in this case, the agreement so much as the implementing legislation that Congress passes to implement the agreement and what it says about what Congress's role is. Okay, let's move on now to a topic that actually relates somewhat to the USMCA. And this is the newly introduced Inflation Reduction Act, or IRA. A hot button issue in previous attempts at reconciliation and climate packages involved tax credits for EVs, but the current proposal is significantly different from past proposals on the tax credit issue. How does it differ? Well, it differs because it's created a, a tax credit that it appears in the short run nobody will be able to use, which is not the intent exactly, but it, it raises in a way the same debate that we had on this podcast about solar panels, which is a conflict of objectives. You know, in this case, do you want to force American production at the risk of slowing down the, the process of conversion to electric vehicles, or do you want to accelerate it, which would, in the short run at least, and probably in the medium run, mean relying on parts and components from, among other places, China? And Senator Manchin has insisted on revising the tax credit for electric vehicles in such a way as to essentially preclude the use of critical minerals or parts and components uh, from, certainly in the short run, from China and other, and Russia and other countries that are on our naughty list. But in the longer run, via very strict content uh, requirements, restrict eligibility for the credit to vehicles that are made with batteries that in turn are assembled and produced with critical minerals that come from countries with whom we have free trade agreements. In conversations with representatives of oil companies, it appears that they don't think that means Japan, even though we have a trade agreement with Japan. It's not an FTA with Japan. I think the bill is actually not clear on that. So that's one question. We clearly don't have one with the EU. So it would leave out battery parts coming from the EU. China is already out. I think the dilemma is here is going to be in the end uh, timing. I mean, the, what Senator Manchin and, and others, he's not alone, say we really need to create domestic capabilities here or North American capabilities to produce these batteries. And we need to be strict about it. And the auto companies, and not just the auto companies, all American companies, and we've seen this with other sectors, are always going to say that the deadlines are too short and there's not enough time for them to convert to whatever it is the government wants them to convert to. I have marginal sympathy for that. This case is a little bit different. I was looking at some data this morning that intrigued me. The, the most interesting statistic that intrigued me was that if you look at the mining sector, the average time between discovery of a deposit of anything and production is 16 and a half years. 
If you're thinking about, let's all go out and find new deposits of lithium or nickel or cobalt, all of which are battery ingredients. And even if you eliminate a whole bunch of hurdles and cut that time in half or cut it by two thirds, it's still going to be a very long time before you actually start producing this resource from, from new sources. Plus, as we've discussed before on this podcast, a lot of this is not the mineral as much as it is the processing of the mineral or the refining of the mineral, which involves actually going through enormous amounts of rock and dust and dirt to extract a fairly small amount of various critical things. The Chinese, I think in the case of lithium, have 90% of the global processing capacity and 50 or 60% of some others. But even there, building a processing capability is a multi-year exercise. I think when the companies say we can't do it right away, they're on to something. I, I think you're right. I think free trade partners can help here. Look, Canada, Australia, Mexico, Peru, and Chile all have mineral extraction industries, which are pretty darn sophisticated. And so it helps to have not just U.S. sourcing. But where I agree with Bill is that we're thinking about this in our typical silos. And what we need is a sort of a whole of government approach at this thing, because you've got to start with who issues the permits for the mining operations? Uh, well, probably the Department of Interior. Who will permit the facilities that refine the minerals? Well, probably the Environmental Protection Agency or some other commercial agency, perhaps many agencies. Who will coordinate with our trading partners? Well, that's USTR or Commerce. And then you go down all, all the way down, you've got auto assembly rules, which are probably USMCA rules. So once again, you're, you're engaging USTR. So it's multi-department, all the way to the fact that this bill that proposes all these uh, subsidies also proposes tax policy that will fall more on manufacturers than anyone else because of the nature of this 15% minimum book income tax, at least if, if our experience in the 80s is anything like what will happen now. The difference between book income and taxable income is often the treatment of capital investment. So if you're a capital intensive industry, you'll wind up with a higher effective tax rate at book income than, than you will under current law. But what I'm suggesting, that would be the Treasury Department. So, But the whole thing is, all the way through, we're in silos, and we've got a problem that will require a whole of government to make any progress at all. I just don't see that happen. The thing to me that's interesting and, and significant about how this will play out is that there is an effort in the Senate, where all this is going on right now, to change the bill to ease some of these restrictions. That effort is being led by the senators from Michigan, mm -hmm. Senator Stabenow and Senator Peters. That tells you that the domestic auto companies have some concerns about this as well. GM, I understand, has come out in favor of the bill, as have things, uh, probably some others. But it's clear that if the Michigan senators have concerns about the ability of the industry to meet the standard, I think that's, you know, their concerns are focused on the domestic industry. They're not trying to save the importers here. So that suggests that I think there's a genuine problem that needs to be uh, examined a little bit more carefully. Personally, the idea of, of pushing the auto companies to structure supply chains that make them independent of, let's, say, let's just say, insecure sources of supply is probably a good effort. But there needs to be some recognition that it's going to take them some time to do that. And you probably don't want to essentially strike a death blow to the conversion to EVs uh, while you're waiting for that to happen. So if you're going to create an incentive and the, the bottom line of the incentive is that nobody can qualify for it, you know, you're really not accomplishing very much. Well, what does this policy proposal say about long-term U.S. trade strategy with China? Is this front-shoring in action? That's a good question. I think yes. 
The point here is let's encourage companies to reevaluate the risk of doing business in and with China and get them to uh, alter their supply chains to move to more secure structures, which include friendshoring or nearshoring, take your pick of words, or reshoring, which I think is what the administration would prefer, but knows that that's unrealistic in a lot of cases. So yeah, I think that's what it's going to mean. Again, keep in mind, these are not exactly mandates. These are targeted and limited incentives. Yes. And the the incentives themselves uh, have been important to the start that electric vehicles have gotten, but they've also created to date what looks and sounds like a luxury good. If you look at who is buying electric vehicles, how many other vehicles they own, for instance, what they use it for, those kinds of things, where the purchases are being made. It's not gotten the penetration into sort of the, the, the average car buyer. They're relatively expensive for what they do. They have, there are some limits on, uh, on service, serviceability and performance. Uh, people are talking about trucks that can't pull trailers, things like that. So there's some complications here that we haven't quite dealt with that subsidies themselves may not solve. So the bigger question is, how do you really get stronger conversion and get electric vehicles out of the luxury good market and into a broader public market. It's it's a hard question. It requires big changes. It doesn't look to me like this is going to get us there anytime soon. One of the other restrictions in the credit is it's restricted to vehicles that cost less than $80,000. So Scott's point about the luxury market, I think, is well taken. I, I'm not sure I have a lot of sympathy for people that want to buy cars more than $80,000. Well, let's turn now across the world to something that everyone, it seems like, has been talking about this week, which is Speaker Pelosi's trip to Taiwan. Her trip is already affecting Taiwan's economy and rippling throughout the trade world. What have we seen so far? Well, not a lot. A lot of menace, and we'll see how this plays out. The Chinese have done two things that are noteworthy. One, they have stopped importing or blocked imports of a variety of Taiwanese products, including a lot of food products, whether that's temporary or permanent remains to be seen. I think the bigger thing they've done is they've announced this live fire military exercise, which if you look at the maps, basically surrounds Taiwan. And what worries me about that, this is like a three or four day thing. So it starts today, which is already almost tomorrow in, in Taiwan, but it's, you know, it's a Thursday through Saturday or Sunday thing. So it is ostensibly uh, temporary. But if you look at their positioning, it, you know, basically it looks like a blockade. They have surrounded the island with military forces, and that makes it possible for them to blockade the island and interdict shipments. What they've told people is we're doing this live fire exp- exercise, so stay away. Most shippers and other countries that are shipping to Taiwan have indicated they've made arrangements to not get in the way because it's a three or four day thing. But it does raise the question that maybe what they're doing is testing uh, a longer term possibility, uh, which would be a big concern. Yes. Look, I, I hope we get through the weekend without a miscalculation on somebody's part. That uh, That's always the risk in these circumstances. The trade actions thus far, Bill's right, are mostly agricultural products. And uh, that's probably because the current president of Taiwan's political base is in the agricultural region. So that may be selective from that standpoint. But it also is a reflection of what they what China could put on the list without causing problems domestically. What they didn't put sanctions on are information technology products like IT chips, 
Okay, those are still really traded between China and Taiwan, as is all, all the investment flows from China to the mainland. So I wouldn't say these sanctions amount to nothing more than peanuts, but it's a small share of the trade bilaterally, and it doesn't affect the core industrial base of China if they are extended going forward. So one thing that's been missed in, in all the flurry over the speaker's visit is uh, the fact that China has repeatedly promised diplomatically for peaceful reunification. That's been a promise that goes back to late 70s and the one China policy. And so that's what's important here that nobody's talking about. The other thing that's interesting, China's response has been focused on Taiwan. It has not been focused on the United States. After all, it was the Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives that went there. Taiwan was the host. The instigator of all this was Speaker Pelosi. But China has not, at least yet, uh, retaliated against the United States. And it's give, given rise to some commentary that has pointed out that China's tendency in, in these situations is to go after the smaller party, Lithuania in the case of Europe, uh, Taiwan in this case. That They're good at bullying countries that are smaller than they are. But they have been more cautious when it comes to countries that are that are bigger. So we'll see. Maybe they have some plans for the United States. But if they have, they've not emerged yet. So this does seem like a politically motivated, coercive economic behavior on the part of the Chinese. Bill, you just referenced the case of Lithuania, which is the example from, I believe, December 2021. Is this a tactic that they're likely to continue to employ? It's time tested. They did it. The earlier example with Norway, when Norway uh, gave the Nobel Peace Prize to uh, Liu Xiaobo, they stopped buying Norwegian salmon and kind of froze relationships with the Norwegians. Their willingness to use tra to weaponize trade is well established. I mean, I recall when I was on the Hill in the 80s, it was it was they did it rather cleverly if, for reasons that are complicated and not worth going into. At one point in the Reagan administration, the Congress actually enacted rather significant tariff increases on Chinese apparel, um, which was unusual for the Congress to do, but it got through. And the Chinese predictably had a, you know, a cranky press release and announced their displeasure rather loudly. But more importantly was with about two months later, they stopped buying American wheat and corn and grain. They just stopped. They didn't make a link, but it was kind of obvious. And a couple of months after that, the, the Congress uh, removed the tariff increases. I think the lesson of that, and that goes back to the early 80s, was China's prepared to use trade as a weapon. And they discovered from time to time that it works. And so yes. I think they're incentivized to keep on doing that. Definitely, it's part of their playbook, but it's part of our playbook, too. It's part of everybody's playbook. It's hard to distinguish what China is doing to Taiwan from what Senator Rubio would like to do to Nicaragua. It's not like they're alone in doing this, but it's certainly become expected as part of the equation of dealing with a rival like China. Well, and it also is a demonstration of another time-honored political cliche, which is what goes around comes around. And if you start doing that, it inevitably comes back and bites you somehow, some way. You can be sure of that. Well, it comes back to bite you maybe weekly, just like the episode of The Trade Guys. <laughs> so We will be back and bite you next week. You can be sure of that. <laughs> All right. See you then. Thanks. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it.
You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.